Hey, Stephanie, Mark, and Liel, and the whole Unorthodox team. It's Molly Ye, and I'm calling to wish you a hearty Mazel Tov on 300 episodes of my all-time forever favorite podcast. I cannot remember a time before Unorthodox. I do not want to. The community you have created is just amazing. You guys make me even more proud and excited to be Jewish, and I hope you never, ever, ever stop podcasting. Here's to 300 million more episodes. Love you guys. Hello there. I am Simon Doonan, a very famous person, apparently. Not only have I done moth stories and all kinds of books and whatever, I was also um, a judge on America's Next Top Model. So given that, you're probably wondering what qualifies me to host this very, very special 300th episode of Unorthodox, featuring stories from your favorite hosts and producers, plus some special messages from listeners and friends of the show. So what qualifies me? I'll tell you what qualifies me. I, Simon Doonan, an Irish person, um, a Gentile, was actually Goy of the Week on multiple occasions on the Unorthodox podcast. So voila, if that doesn't qualify me, I don't know what does. In preparation for this wonderful gig, this illustrious gig, I went back and burrowed into the archive and listened from the very beginning. And oy vey, were they a hot mess. But don't take my word for it. Let's travel back in time to the summer of 2015 when Stephanie, Mark, and Liel launched this humble podcast. They gave it their all, bless their little cotton socks, in those early days, but sadly, their all was not enough. Here they are in the very first few episodes delivering performances that leave us wanting less. Listen for yourselves. Hi, welcome to Unorthodox, a weekly podcast from Tablet Magazine, in which we talk about the news of the Jews with a disturbing level of honesty. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, and as usual, I'm joined by my Tablet colleagues, Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hi. Hey, Stephanie. And Staff Writer Liel Leibovitz. Senior Writer for you. Hello. Senior Writer Liel Leibovitz. Thoughts? I comment? Mean, I can't even. Yeah. You can't it's even. too early in the morning for, for thoughts of, <laughs> of, of rabbis' members. Yeah. Okay, but let's turn to some other topics. Let's turn to Berlin, which is hosting the Maccabia. Do you say Maccabia? Maccabia. Maccabia oh. Games in the stadium that Hitler built for the 1936 Olympics. Is this uh, a huge triumph of uh, German rehabilitation, or is this an irony uh, unworthy of all of us. Well, first let's talk about the Maccabia games. The Maccabia actually... games are an irony unworthy of all of us. <laughs> and so wait, are, wait, these... so tell people what the okay, Maccabia games so are. These are actually the European Maccabia games. But first, a little news of the Jews. Two big stories coming out of New York City this week. John Stewart signed off, handing the reins to the comedy horse over to new jockey Trevor Noah. Did he say comedy horse or comedy whores? Horse. Oh, the I... latter would have been funny. I mean, he's making ba- like movies yeah, that we don't even know exist because they go straight to, to like airplanes. Okay, Grown Ups was a good movie. As was Grown Ups too. Um, and 
I think the difference between and and I love Sandberg. I think this is the difference between the difference between Sandberg and Sandler or Sandler and Sandberg is the difference between you know personality and identity. In case you wondered, on Unorthodox, we're never going to miss a chance to work in an Amy Schumer reference. So naturally, the few who bothered listening to this calamity hardly had high hopes. But they were neglecting one very important bit of insight. These three Jews, they really loved to talk. And once they started talking, there wasn't a force in the world that could make them stop. And wouldn't you know, as they kept talking, they learned. They learned not only about how to host a proper podcast, they also learned a thing or two about themselves. Which brings us to the first of four special stories in this episode from our three hosts and one of our producers. In this first story, we learn that for one of our hosts, Stephanie, the talking didn't always come easy. She learned the hard way that sometimes the soulful journey to finding your voice begins with getting two loquacious middle-aged men to shut the fuck up for a moment. So tell us, Stephanie Butnick, about how it was that you went from shrinking violet to a master in the art of interrupting. Our very first live show was at Yale in October 2015. We'd started the podcast a few months earlier and Mark hooked us up with a gig in New Haven. I don't remember the news of the Jews or what we talked about with the guests, but I do remember what one of the guests said to me after the show. He was a philosophy professor and he approached me with a strange question. Can I speak to you as though you were one of my students? I was 28 and still very much adjusting to seeing myself as an adult. So naturally I said, yes. There are three people on this podcast, he told me. Two of them talk a lot. The third barely says anything. Do you know who I'm talking about, he asked. Unfortunately, I did. I've always been shy. The anxious kind, where you're in a group and you wait for an opening in the conversation and until you have the perfectly formed thought. And by the time you're ready to jump in, everyone else has moved on to an entirely different topic. I remember once in college, I was talking to a cool older girl and I tried to tell her I was excited about whatever party she was talking about. But what came out instead of I'm excited was I'm exciting. I was mortified and I stewed about it for days. And here I am still talking about it. I always chalked up my overly measured way of thinking and interacting to the fact that I was a writer. I thought things and then I wrote them down. And then I rewrote and edited and deleted and rewrote. Off the cuff was not my thing. It terrified me. So when Mark Oppenheimer approached me and Leah Leibowitz with the idea of starting a podcast, I genuinely didn't know what to say. First, I suggested someone else at Tablet who would surely make a better host than I would. I was flattered that he thought of me, but I couldn't fathom that I was the right person for the job. After some insistence on his part, I reluctantly agreed to do it. 
we recorded a demo in our publisher Morty Landown's office with a local rabbi friend of ours serving as our test guest. Mark took the lead, asking questions and guiding the conversation. Liel swooped in with follow-ups, taking things in a wildly different direction. And once again, I found myself in one of those situations where when you finally come up with the right thing to say, the moment to share it is long gone. Once again, I was exciting. It wasn't just the speed of the conversation that had me tongue-tied. It was also my co-hosts. I was about a decade younger than Mark and Liel, and while I had worked with them for a few years, I didn't know them all that well. I knew they both had written multiple books and had been published all over the place. I was intimidated. They were ideas people holding forth at our tablet meetings each week with opinions and theories. Plus, they were argumentative by nature. Mark literally wrote a memoir about being a high school debate phenom. And Liel made provocation his professional pastime. They also seemed to know a lot about a lot of things. Jewish stuff and everything, really. Give them a topic and they could riff. I prepared for early episodes like an overachieving high schooler trying to ace an exam, but like if you didn't know what class you'd be walking into on any given day. What if I got something wrong or said something stupid? The anxiety overwhelmed me, so instead, I didn't say much at all. I watched Mark and Liel lob comments back and forth like it was the U.S. Open and I had a courtside seat. Or worse, I was that kid who ran across the court to fetch the balls after each point. It was exhausting, and I wasn't getting much playing time. You can imagine how long the drive back from New Haven felt that night in 2015. I flushed with shame, anger, and embarrassment sitting in the dark car with Liel and our founding producer, Julie Subrin. I was mortified, but also indignant. How dare this professor call me out like that? How dare he say exactly what I knew to be true? I called Mark and Liel. I told them they had to make room for me. They had to give me more airtime. They had to let me get a word in edgewise. I was proud of myself for being so assertive. My therapist would be proud too. I was completely unprepared for their response. They said, no. They weren't going to stop talking or slow down. They had no intention of leaving me openings to chime in. They said they weren't going to handicap the conversation for me. I flushed through a few new emotions, confusion, self-pity, a little self-righteous anger. But then it started to make sense. They weren't being dicks. They just weren't going to give me the easy way out or in. They knew something about me that I hadn't figured out yet. Producer Josh Cross hit me with that girl boss makeover self-empowerment montage music. showed up and I started taking shots. I feel like ponies have to be assholes. Are we supposed to be like doing something else here? Do you know who's assholes? I threw in a pithy one-liner about whatever Israeli election was happening at the time. Do they ever not have early elections? (laughs) That's right. I I called out Mark for saying something very Mark. But I also agree with Stephanie that, um, if I may rephrase, if if I may give my version of what I think Stephanie was getting at. Mark's plane. If I can Mark's plane. I asked guests the questions I wanted to ask. 
what's fascinating is what you are doing and what you're so openly saying you're doing is basically rebranding Judaism for a specific type of young person who may feel disenfranchised by the traditional Jewish form. Do you think people are put off by this idea of like you going and you're saying, yeah, I'm, re- I'm branding. I, you come from the branding world. You come from the marketing world. You obviously were you know, very successful there. Is, is there something sort of like sacrilegious almost about saying like, yeah, I'm rebranding Judaism? I stopped being scared and I started having fun. I don't know how many people were going to buy the ham because they saw the coat. Like, how many kosher keepers accidentally <laughs> right. bought ham because it was labeled kosher? Like, I it's don't like, think- look, look, Shlomo, your prayers have been answered. This wasn't <laughs> like the genetically modified bacon that's going to be kosher. This, I don't think this actually caused any real harm to anyone in the community, in any community, except for the ham community. Javi, it's it's croque monsieur for dinner tonight, Javi. It's just so funny. It wasn't just that Mark and Liel loved hearing the sound of their own voices, though God knows they do. They understood that the show needed energy and they brought it. They were doing it for the show and now so was I. Something else was happening too. I was speaking up more everywhere, even when the mics were off. I interjected more at meetings and threw out ideas without worrying whether I sounded smart. The more I did it, the more confident I got that my ideas were good. And if you didn't think so, that was kind of your problem. Soon I treated every conversation like an on-air joust, interrupting friends and family and poor Ben Cohen. I let my guard down and grew a thicker skin somehow at the same time. And I just kept talking because I was smart and I was funny and people liked listening to me. Guys, I'm back. I'm back now. We're going to be fine. To all the people who messaged me saying, I can't listen to the show anymore without you. To all the people who were like, when are you coming back? So glad you had a baby, way, but like, you need to be back on the show. Mark and I include these people. Like, we were also texting you, we can't listen to the show anymore. I'm talking mostly to you two. <laughs> this is the kind of professional development that people pay good money for if they're lucky. To learn how to be more assertive, more empowered, more comfortable with themselves. I got it from this podcast, from my co-hosts who believed in me and pushed me, from our listeners who noticed and wrote in to tell me to keep speaking up, and from myself, since I put in a hell of a lot of work. I don't know what that Yale philosophy professor would say to me today, but let's be honest, I'd probably just interrupt him. And now, let's hear some more nice things people have to say about this damn show, which, BTW, didn't even stock my green room with creme de menthe, my favorite drink, as I requested. Hi, it's Jill Karkman, and I loved being a guest on the Unorthodox podcast. Congratulations on 300 episodes, guys. 300 is a very special number to me because the movie 300 is like porn to me. This is Wayne Hoffman, executive editor at Tablet, a.k.a. your boss, calling to wish you a mazel tov on 300 episodes of Unorthodox. Until now, 300 to me meant a perfect score in bowling, something I've never achieved, or a homoerotic movie, which I've never seen. But now, 300 to me means 300 episodes of my favorite podcast, all of which I've listened to, and I'm looking forward to the next 300. Mazel tov. Hi, this is Ben. You might know me as Ben Cohen, and you might remember me from the one time Stephanie let me be on her podcast. And yes, it is her podcast. In fact, the only reason you're hearing from me right now is that she has no idea I'm doing this. I wanted to give a big, huge mazel tov to the entire Unorthodox crew on their 300th episode. What an incredible accomplishment. I cannot believe that Stephanie has put up with you 
for 300 weeks. I'm already excited for my next appearance 300 episodes from now. Hey, J.Crew, this is Tad calling from Canton in the south of China. Congratulations, 300 episodes. That's just amazing. I've been listening to, to you since you began, actually, from the very beginning. I've laughed at all your jokes, including Miaschwitz, or especially Miaschwitz. <laughs> and um, I wrote to you four years ago, and you read my letter on the air. I was questioning my identity as a Jew because I'm only a quarter Jewish. I had no, no traditions back home, but I definitely identified, like that was a quarter I identified most with. The unorthodox rabbinate said, well, this is a Jew. You gave me confidence, and four years later... Um, I'm, I'm celebrating Shabbat with my goy but Jewish husband. I reg regularly go to Chabad uh, in a nearby city called Foshan. I even had a, a very late in my life bar mitzvah with my new Hebrew name, Akiva. Thank you guys, really. Hi, this is Michelle Wolf in Los Angeles, and I've been a listener for many years. Uh, I want to say muzzle tov on your 300th episode. Every year, I really look forward to the conversion episode around Shavuot. As someone who was born into um, a pretty affiliated Jewish family, I'm really renewed and so moved by the conversion stories. I listen to you many Friday afternoons when I'm cooking Shabbat dinner, just like I am this week. Thank you for being there, and keep up the good work. Hello, this is AJ Jacobs, and I want to wish... My friends at Own Orthodox, congratulations on 300 entertaining and thought-provoking and Jewish-themed episodes. It's an amazing show. And if memory serves, I was a guest on the very first episode, and you guys were newbies to podcasting. I remember you weren't quite sure how to work the equipment. I had to tell you this is called a microphone, and you want to speak into this round part. And now look at you. You're experts. So congratulations on 300 brilliant episodes. I can't wait to listen to 300 more and be a guest on some of them. Hi, this is Irene Savaha. And Hal Karp. Greetings from episode 150, the apology episode of 5779, where I told a story about making amends. And I heard that story. Which led to a bigger apology. Then together, we were on episode 215, announcing we had just gotten engaged. No apology for that. We want to say thank you for uniting us. And, and mazel, mazel tov on, on your 300th episode. episode. Woo! God, that was heartwarming, wasn't it? Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y.
Hey, J. Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. As the show flourished, some of our hosts were busy learning to speak up and others, well, others never quite learned how and when to shut up. As Mark Oppenheimer experienced firsthand when he inadvertently picked a fight with the most powerful group of steely zealots on the internet, the Irish language preservationists. It's been long enough. The wounds have healed. Let us revisit that grim conflict. Hey, J. Crew, this is Mark. The thing about hosting a podcast, which I began doing in the summer of 2015, is that you simultaneously want a million listeners, but you also want them all to be your best friends. You want to conquer the world, but you also want to run a tiny, intimate salon. The problem is you can't have it both ways. As I was to learn, your podcast can't simultaneously be an arena rock show and also a small gig at an intimate club. If your show stays small and the only people listening are your mom and your best friend, then you know that the stakes are low. And that's kind of nice. If you say something stupid, there's nobody there to hear it, except the 10 people who are most likely to forgive you. On the other hand, if your show gets popular, which is great, you want it to be popular, You get sponsors like Harry's Razors or American Jewish World Service, and people talk about you on social media, and maybe you even make a little bit of money for your troubles. But when you make a boneheaded comment, there's a whole judgmental public out there ready to tear you down. I think that in the life of every podcaster who makes it big, or even makes it medium big or whatever we are, there's a moment when that podcaster realizes that along with success comes naked exposure. 
that with the good, you have to take the bad. And for me, that moment came with what I now think of as the Irish episode. Now, right now, those of you who are OGs, original J. Crews, people from back in the day, the, the early fans, you know what I'm talking about. You remember the Irish episode. For the rest of you, saddle up your dog, hop on, and go for a ride because it is a fun story. It was back in March 2016. Unorthodox was just a baby podcast, not even a year old. We already had our basic format, though, the Jew of the Week, Gentile of the Week, the Mazel Tov, and of course, News of the Jews. Our Jew of the Week that week was Sarah Aroesti, who has been on the show other times. And in fact, we had her on just a few weeks ago. This was her first appearance on the show. And she was talking about working as a Ladino singer, a Ladino songstress. And I made a little crack about people who were trying to rescue the Ladino language. And I compared them to people rescuing Yiddish and people, well, here, have a listen to what I said. Well, I, I think Ladino is basically a musical movement that's attempting to revive a language that's basically dead. I'm just going to come out and say it. I think they're like, tw- I think Ladino is like Irish, <laughs> which is they're 12 real obsessives who actually speak, speak it, it, who are trying to teach it to their kids, thinking and, and the Hebrew rest did is it. Michael Flatley and Lord of the yeah, Dance. Yeah, the rest of it is some sort, sort of, like, of- <laughs> But I mean, basically there's like these world of languages out there that say, well, Hebrew did it. Hebrew came back from the dead. And so we can do it too. And so then you have these sad, like Irish festivals. And Aww. I think of Ladino as having better music than that, but not actually being spoken by anyone anymore. No. It's Esperanto's older, cooler sister. (laughs) Now, I think it's pretty clear that I was taking pot shots at my own people, the Jews. And so I thought I could have a little fun with some other people, in this case, the Irish. And by the way, I wasn't just making fun of my very own people, the Ashkenazi Jews. Also, on listening to this clip from several years ago, it occurs to me that I was kind of belittling the Ladino speakers, these amazing fellow Jews of mine who are trying to preserve and revitalize this old language. So I wasn't just making fun of people trying to reclaim Irish. I was also making fun of people reclaiming Yiddish and reclaiming Ladino. It seemed to me that I was on pretty safe ground. I wasn't punching down. I was punching up and down and sideways. I was being an equal opportunity antagonist. But here's the thing. Whether I was in the right or in the wrong didn't matter to me. I have to cop to the fact that I was just not thinking about who might be offended. Why? Because I didn't think anyone was listening. I barely thought Jews were listening. I mean, my mom wasn't listening. My wife wasn't listening. My colleagues at Tablet, I think they listened sometimes. But basically, we weren't sure that the podcast was going to last. We were like seven or eight months old. Just a baby podcast, not even at our first birthday. So with all of that... I had no idea that the Irish-speaking community was going to be listening. I mean, come on, give me a break. What were the odds that anyone in Ireland would hear that I made fun of their little nationalist Irish language heritage movement? It, It seemed unthinkable. I didn't consider it. But as I was to learn that Thursday, when the episode dropped on Twitter, they were paying attention. And somehow, Matthew O'Coyman, an Irish language journalist, saw something about it on Twitter, and then he wrote about it for a national news service. And then the Twitter storm that I already had kicked up against myself got even bigger. I was in the gun sites of Irish Twitter, and it was brutal. I was being accused of cultural genocide against the Irish. And this is a little bit ironic because of all the ethnic groups besides my own, I kind of love the Irish. I mean, I have to say, growing up in Springfield, Massachusetts, everyone was Irish. I've said this before on the podcast, 
Our Little League team was literally organized by Catholic parish. You had to play for either Our Lady of Hope or Our Lady of Sacred Heart or Holy Name or Blessed Mother. I mean, those were the team names on the backs of our jerseys in Springfield, Massachusetts. So like me and the Irish, were cool. And yet here I was being called an enemy of the Irish. So the next month, uh, a few weeks later, in April 2016, we had Matthew O'Coyman come on our show, and he talked about how exactly he had gone after me. Okay, I hope he <laughs> lies and he never rises. I hope he gets the 37 diseases of the ark. I hope all his pipes get plugged <laughs> up. <laughs> Those are sort of like Yiddish insults. Yeah, the same idea. Right. They're like very specific, very bizarre, like things you want to happen. You guys are so Jewish. It's crazy. That's crazy. Apparently we share oppressive mothers. (laughs) Apparently. So one of the funny things about being attacked by Irish Twitter is everyone was attacking me in Irish. And I kind of, I did want to say to them, if you're really trying to get under my skin, like having made clear that I don't know Irish, the genius was that I assumed the worst, right? So when I couldn't understand what you all were saying, I figured you were like attacking my dead mother, basically. There's a few people who you really irritate. But then there was another uh, tongue-in-cheek thing. It is the oldest vernacular language in Europe, written vernacular language in Europe. Couldn't give you a date, but hundreds and hundreds of years it goes back. It was primarily the main language of the island of Ireland until around the middle of the 1800s when we were struck by uh, what you would call the famine. Uh, the, the potato famine, I don't know if you know about that, but a million people died and a million people emigrated, most of them to the east coast of America. Also, under the oppressive laws of British occupiers, it was, it was trampled upon with the establishment of the independent Irish state in the 1920s. Uh, Irish made the official language of Ireland and in the last sense, 2011, 40% of the Irish population said that they had some understanding of Irish. And I would estimate that it's about 100,000 people that speak it on a daily basis from now, which probably sounds very small. That's remarkably like Hebrew, by the way. Yeah. Even as Matthew was saying this, I was still kind of in disbelief, which might seem a little bit weird now. I mean, after all, I've been in the public eye as a writer since my early 20s. And I've been in the internet age a long time, too. But I was first formed as a writer in the era of the early internet, before Twitter and before Facebook. When I was first writing, I kid you not, attacks on me would come on paper or maybe email, but as letters to the editor and just a few of them. So you'd write something and then over the next day or week, you'd get some letters to the editor and then your publication would print those letters. And, you know, maybe there'd be three letters or a dozen, but not hundreds or thousands, not like on Twitter or Facebook or even in the comment section of an article. So right now, with the Irish affair, I was getting an education in just how responsive the world was and how angry they could be. The emergent internet was unlike anything I'd ever dealt with before in its intensity and in its range. And that was a pretty hard lesson to learn. I'm not going to lie, it was pretty harsh, and I felt pretty bruised. In a sense, it scarred me forever. There's a moment in the life of any public figure when... He loses his web innocence. And for me, it was with the Irish affair. It was a lesson to me, a lesson that doesn't just apply on podcasts or on the internet, but in life. And the lesson is one of humility. First, I should remember that I don't always know what I'm talking about. I mean, the confidence with which I mocked the Irish language renaissance was a little bit unearned. I had no idea. Second, As a public figure, I do have to be sensitive to people who may be listening far, far, far away. I mean, the reality is that we're not in the days of the daily newspaper anymore where, you know, the Springfield Republican lands on my parents' porch 
And, you know, the only other people who've read it are several tens of thousands of people in Western Massachusetts. Those days are gone. And I'm a nostalgic person who tends to think those days were better, but I have to live in reality. I have to remember that that's not the case anymore. And I have to be responsible to all the people who might read my stuff or hear my stuff around the globe. And actually that's pretty awesome. I mean, it's good to have that kind of breadth and range, but along with it comes responsibility. Finally, though, and I think that this is also a lesson that ties in with humility, I was reminded that in the end, humor is a great solvent, that we should never take ourselves too seriously. And I had lost that in this whole episode. I had been humorous in making fun of the Irish and the Ladino speakers and the Yiddish speakers. And, you know, for better or for worse, that brought a lot of opprobrium on me. During the week when I was reading these attacks on me on Twitter, I got very terrified and very scared, and I, I began to regret that I'd ever even created a podcast. I took it way too seriously. And it was humor that brought me back around. And it was the humor of Matthew O'Coyman when we had him on our show. He ended up being a lovely, generous soul, somebody who didn't hold grudges, who in fact seemed a little bit sheepish about how mean some of the people on Twitter had been because that was never his intent. He really wanted to have a little fun with me. And he came on our show ready to forgive and more important, ready to laugh. To be clear, when I said that I, only 12 sad old guys at an Irish festival speak Irish, that, that was wrong. And I'd like to apologize <laughs> to all of Ireland. Before we go, could you teach us how to say something useful? Maybe for Passover. Well, I can tell you what the Irish for Passover is. It's Koshkning Yudach, which means the Jewish Easter. I don't know how you feel. <laughs> so to all the Irish speakers out there, may we get together on your holidays or ours with mugs of Murphy's Irish Stout or Guinness or Manischewitz. And may we speak our ancestral languages and may we podcast it to the world. And now, a word from some of our important friends. Hey, it's Morty from Tablet, and I wanted to share a message, especially to Mark, in honor of your 300th episode. Dear Mark, when Alana Newhouse informed me that she was taking a maternity leave in the summer of 2014, she immediately mentioned that she had arranged for you to fill in as Tablet's editor-in-chief in her absence. Knowing you from your fascinating religion columns in the New York Times, I was instantly reassured that Tablet would be in great hands over that summer. But little did I know what a wonderful shidduch it would become. When Alana returned, you agreed to remain as a contributing editor, and having gotten to know the Tablet staff, and with your open, friendly manner, unbridled creativity, and let's put on a show panache, you looked at the budding field of podcasting and saw a role for Tablet and a way to continue the wonderful partnership that had begun serendipitously when Alana gave birth to Elijah. The rest is history, and 300 episodes later, all of us at Tablet and millions of listeners are thrilled and in your debt for the Jewish oasis that you, Stephanie, and Liel have created, nurtured, and sustained at such a high level on a weekly basis. It's, in the non-Liel sense of the word, a fabrengen of creativity, captivating conversation, and conviviality. And even when we've had to retreat to the far-flung individual recording studios of the COVID pandemic, 
you all found a way to continue the warm interaction that turned us all into your cherished friends. Thank you, Todaraba and Mazel Tov. Mazel Tov on your 300th episode from the other Mark Oppenheimer in South Africa. After I appeared on your show, my father referred to your Mark as the real Mark Oppenheimer. But in spite of that, I still listen to your show. And whenever I do, as a good Goyesha friend of mine said, it fills my room with light and joy. Hi, this is Lisa, Liel's wife, and I'm here with Lillian Hudson, our kids. We're longtime listeners and big-time fans. Congrats, Stephanie, Mark, Josh, and Dad. Stephanie, you are by far my favorite. We're so proud of you. It's been amazing to listen to the show grow, and it's certainly been an important part of my own Jewish journey. Thank you so much for that and for all that you do. Mazel Tov on your 300th episode of Unorthodox. We love you. Hi, everyone. Producer Sarah Fredminator here. I'm coming up on three years working with the incredible team at Unorthodox. But some of you may know that before that, I was the number one super fan of the show. I've listened since the beginning. I would email unorthodox at tabletmag.com with my ideas for segments and guests. I went to live shows. I think that when my now five-year-old was born, I invited the hosts to come to his bris or I invited them to his first birthday party, something like that. It got me a shout out on the show, which was really exciting. Basically, I don't fangirl halfway. So when I got a call from Josh Cross inviting me to be a guest on the circumcision episode, I was so excited because it was a chance to have my voice on Unorthodox. In between the time that Josh asked me to come on and when I actually came on, that's when they posted the job for what was then assistant producer. And I immediately messaged Josh and said, um, can I apply to this? Fast forward three years later, it's been incredible being part of the team and expanding to the other podcasts we work on as part of Tablet Studios. And I'm still a huge fangirl. The feeling does not go away. Mazel tov to Stephanie and Liel and Mark on the 300th episode. And to all of you listening, yes, Stephanie really is as cool as she seems. Hi, everyone. It's Rebecca, Mark's eldest daughter. I'm here with two of my younger siblings, Anna and David, who wanted to give our dad a message. Hey, Dad. This is Anna. Happy, happy, happy. 300 on Orthodox. Woo! Congratulations. And hello, Daddy. Um, that's Stevie. Good job. Gorgeous. By the way, if the Irish were mad at the hosts, it was nothing compared to the Jews. Paradoxically, they would get more annoyed than anybody. Actually, make that host. One gentleman in particular, bearded, loud, a bit of a brute, generated, shall we say, some heat. Since it's the holiday season, traditionally a time when you gather around the hearth and scream at your family about politics, let us take a moment now to do the same. Here's Liel Leibowitz delivering a bit of feisty F-word cheer. Picture this. It's Christmas time in New York City. Everyone is cheerful. The city is beautiful with trees and Christmas lights. 
everywhere. You're an Orthodox host, myself and Stephanie and Mark, together with producer Josh Cross, are in a bar downtown that honestly looks like it was decorated by Charles Dickens. It's all Victorian charm, and it's so Christmassy that if Tiny Tim showed up behind the bar and served you a martini, you wouldn't be in the least surprised. But in the middle of all this yuletide cheer, the four of us are not happy. We're about as cheerful as the Grinch. We're there for a year-end State of the Podcast Summit. It's an important year, too, because 2020 was now upon us. And while we didn't know that COVID was about to hit us, we did know that pretty soon we'll have another presidential election to deal with. How did that make us feel? Well, here are Mark, Stephanie, and Josh recreating this unforgettable evening. Leo, when we talk politics, you get so strident and so angry. And I always feel backed into this corner. And then I try to find common ground and say, well, maybe the left is right on this and maybe the right is right on this. And you'll always take my concessions and and accept that I'm conceding certain stuff, but you never concede anything back. And you never say that Stephanie has softened your stance in any way either. So it's like you take our concessions and you pocket them and then you make none of your own. And to me, I mean, frankly, that just feels kind of shitty. Can we please not do this, guys? Can we just not talk politics? It's not the podcast I want to do. I just I just can't do it. If it's going to be this, this constant arguing, I honestly don't think I want to do it anymore. Uh, guys, does anybody need another drink? I'm going to go get another drink. I'm going to go get each one of you another drink. Yep, that was us. Not very merry, I know. How did we get there? Well, I regret to say... It was all my damn fault. As you may remember, the 2016 election was, what's the term I'm grasping for? Ah, a colossal dumpster fire. Everyone was freaking out, and I was no different. I was politically confused long before Donald Trump rode his escalator into history. Super liberal on some issues, really conservative on others. I'm the kind of guy who loves his guns about as much as I hate industrial farming or, for that matter, any other sort of big business, really. And when the 45th president took office, a man I considered to be, shall we say, a touch flawed, I felt more politically homeless than I'd been in my entire life. So, naturally, I took it out on the people I loved, my pod family, Stephanie and Mark, Rewind to that bar scene. We were there because I insisted we have a meeting to talk politics. For weeks, I was walking around with a sort of knot in my stomach, feeling like I was not being heard. Mark and Stephanie, I thought, could make any liberal joke they wanted because liberals making jokes is basically our popular culture. But when I tried to rib the Democrats, say, I got crickets or worse, pushback. It was time for me to speak up. It was time for me to unleash my inner Hannity and roar at the woke madness I disliked so much. It was time for me to stand up and be heard. Except that, as you already heard, my friends were having none of it. They didn't share my feelings about me being somehow silenced. They just thought, I was the one being political, 
that I had been compensating for my own inner turmoil by simultaneously trying to make the show more political and not really listening to what they had to say when I did. Josh did end up getting us more drinks that night. A lot more drinks. But even that fourth martini didn't help. We said goodbye with just enough civility. And I walked home feeling, well, feeling pretty awful. One part of me was still angry. But one part felt guilty, like I was somehow ruining this great gig we had with my own, as we say in Yiddish, Mishigas. I was still simmering a few days later when I stumbled across a Talmudic story that gave me tremendous relief. It's about Hillel the Elder, the spiritual leader of the Jewish people around the time of King Herod. You may know him from such beautiful aphorisms like, if I am not for myself, who is for me? Or, if not now, when? Which the internet, everyone's favorite source of Talmudic wisdom, has instead attributed to the actress Emma Watson. But the story that made me see things in a very different light goes something like this. One day, Hillel got up in the middle of studying Torah and told his students he was going to perform a great mitzvah, a great righteous deed. The students were so excited. They leapt up and followed him, eager to see what this great master was about to do, what lesson in righteousness he was going to teach them. And Hillel, well, he went to the bathroom. His disciples waited outside, shocked. And when he reemerged, they sheepishly asked him if he was pulling their leg when he said that he was about to perform a mitzvah. Nah, said Hillel. He was being serious. If he didn't go to the bathroom, if his body didn't function properly with all the wonderful and gross and natural and smelly and miraculous bits of it, studying Torah would be impossible. Because a person, Hillel understood, wasn't some weird dichotomy between holy and impure, between profound and profane, between good and bad. A person, to borrow a good phrase from a great poet, contained multitudes, stuffed with the stuff that is coarse and stuffed with the stuff that is fine. A human being poops and prays. Take either one away and what you have is no longer a human being. Thinking about the number one sage of his time going number two, something clicked. I was so ready to rumble, so ready to compensate for my own yawning anxieties by turning every conversation into a political argument that I was at risk of forgetting that the magic of life lay elsewhere, in the small and mundane moments, in the natural joy we take when we do things that are so basic we hardly ever bother thinking about them. Like going to the bathroom, sure, but also enjoying a song or a sandwich or a fun conversation with two really good friends. Which, if you think of it, is what life is really about. Not so much about the conversation, but about the conversation partners, because honestly, all my political ideas are worthless if all they do is separate me from the basic human activity of having a good time with friends. Which, is a pretty good description of what unorthodox is. Sadly, none of what I just said is a very fashionable sentiment these days. 
If you write or teach or talk or tweet, you get applause if you stay on message. Everything is politicized. Everything is partisan. On the left, you hashtag resist anyone and anything and always. On the right, you own the libs, even if the libs are suggesting that you take steps that may very well save your life. It's not just a mirthless and deeply depressing way to live. It's also deeply anti-human, and it's certainly anti-Jewish. We pray in groups of 10 because one is too few and 100 is way too many. And 10 is just the right number to make sure there are going to be at least three people in shul every day you just can't stand. Yet, you have to be there with them because they are your community and because they too can't and shouldn't be reduced to the two or three traits you find most objectionable about. And look, there's a bunch I find objectionable about Stephanie and Mark. Stephanie, for example, refuses to admit that her cat is a homicidal maniac who belongs wherever they put Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs. Mark thinks bagels should be toasted, which isn't exactly a crime against humanity, but it's not far either, and beside his interest in fine cuisine extends as far as friendlies. But I love these guys, and they, I think, love me. They love me even when I was so prickly and brittle and wrong about politics, even as I tried to turn our beloved podcast into some bad version of a cable TV news shoutfest. I never really said this to them before. When you have a podcast, you save the best bits for the air. But I'm sorry, and I'm grateful. We may have walked away from that bar unhappy, but boy, do I think that our show eventually got good. It got good because I realized I was wrong and they were right, and more politics was not anyone's prescription for a happier life. There are plenty of other places you could go for shrill and pointless political arguments or even meaningful ones. Hey, I myself still write about politics pretty regularly and often pretty forcefully. But if you think every single aspect of life has to always stop and consider deep and thorny questions of partisanship and policy, well, I guess we're just not the right podcast for you. Because here we talk about cream cheese and about our kids and about cats and Auschwitz and books and tefillin and anything and everything that makes up the gorgeous mosaic of life. Some of it is profane, some profound, some frivolous, and some deeply, deeply personal. We believe, as I wrote in a piece earlier this year, that only religious fanatics, small children, and machines think in binaries. We want there to be a refuge from all the shouting, a place where you could just hang out with people you love and feel a touch of unmitigated, uncomplicated, uncompromised joy. We want there to be a place where talking isn't just going through a checklist of socially acceptable pieties. We want there to be a place where you could just hang out, which is as holy an activity as we humans have. Took me a few Christmases to figure it out, but I couldn't be more grateful that I did. And now some more words from our friends. Hello, Stephanie, Liel, Mark, Josh, Sarah, Robert, and Quinn the Quintern. 
This is Dara Horn, host of Adventures with Dead Jews, the morbid baby podcast that all of you spawned. I am so proud to be your morbid spawn. Long before I met any of you, I was quietly lurking and listening to literally all 300 episodes. And the amazing thing is that even though I now know you all personally, anyone who listens to you feels like they know you all personally. I know because I was yelling at all of you in my car for years before I had the chance to yell at you in real life. I hope to continue yelling at you in my car for many years to come. Mazel tov, yashar koach, and may you go from strength to strength. Hey guys, this is Matthew Fishbane, creative director at Tablet, and I just want to say congratulations to Unorthodox at 300 episodes. That leaves you with only 1,700 more to go to reach Mel Brooks status. Hey, Mark, Liel, Stephanie, and Josh. This is Rebecca Cinnamon Murphy. I feel like you co-sponsored my conversion. I have this distinct memory of listening to my headphones in an airport. Mark said something about the derech. And I looked at my husband and I said, what is the derech? And he said, the path. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. It was one of the first steps. Thank you so much for being part of my journey and continuing to be part of my Jewish life, living the calendar. This is Amy Gerling from Santa Barbara, California. I don't always make my bed. I don't always wash my face. I don't always do many things that would probably make my life better. But what I never, never, never miss is listening to Unorthodox. You have introduced me to so many great books and people and ideas, and I am eternally grateful. And if I don't make it to 120, I plan to listen to you from the other side. Thank you for being a part of my life. Yeshur Koach. Hi, Unorthodox. This is Leah Herzog talking to you from Givat Ze'ev, Israel. I love your podcast. I love pretty much everything about it, and I love every single one of you. In the two and a half years since I've made Aliyah, gone through four elections, going through COVID, your podcast has been a beacon of sanity and of joy to me. Your interviews are thought-provoking. Your banter is hysterical. I laugh out loud. It keeps me company. It keeps me warm. It keeps me hopeful that there's actually great things that can happen when people who agree to disagree and yet care about each other and care about humanity all get together and put together a really intelligent, thought-provoking, wonderful show. I wish you a big mazal tov on your 300th anniversary and just one big yiyasher kochachem. God be with you and have a great day. Hey, Stephanie, Mark, Leo, congratulations on your 300th episode of Unorthodox. This is Sister Julia Walsh, and I loved being the Gentile of the week on episode 135. That was such an incredible honor, and it was so much fun to then record content for you for episode 147 when I was thrilled to go to my first Shabbat meal as a Franciscan sister. And this introduction to the podcast world was so fun for me that You all inspired me to start my own podcast. Now I am a podcaster too. Mine is called Messy Jesus Business, and it's a spinoff of my blog, which has been going since 2010. Thank you so much for all you're doing and want to just say mazel tov. 
Did I say that right? Oh, I hope so. Okay, peace. Oh, no, I mean, shalom. <laughs> Bye. Such, friends, is the nature of unorthodox. As year one gave way to year three, and year three cozied up to year five, the men and women who produced this show not only became unimaginably wealthy and obscenely famous, but they also learned an important life lesson, that we are all here huddled together, comforting each other in a cold and confusing world, all roots in that giant and timeless tree of tradition. It was just such a profound lesson that even warmed the indifferent heart of Josh Cross, the show's pork-loving atheist, Jersey-born producer. His revelation came at a most unlikely time and at a most unlikely place, during the midday lunch rush in Manhattan's Union Square. The first time I ever heard about Unorthodox was September 16th, 2017. The reason I know the exact date is that it was on my calendar. My wife and I were invited to a friend's place for a few drinks, and one of their other guests was a super fan, still is, and was going on and on about this great podcast. I was vaguely paying attention as they went on, Jewish this, Unorthodox that. And it's likely I rolled my eyes pretty far back in my head, like my son does when I tell him about how life was before cell phones and the internet. Yeah, sure, whatever. Not for me. Growing up, I did all the things your very run-of-the-mill reformed Jew in the Jersey suburbs would do. I went to Hebrew school one to two times a week from age five until my bar mitzvah, and then even for a few years after. I went to high holiday services, and even to Shabbat services, maybe once or twice a year, if my grandparents wanted company. What I didn't do, however, was get excited about being a Jew. I didn't join any youth group. I laughed at the people all excited to go to Camp Harlem with all the nifty kids. And when I went to college, I definitely wasn't interested in Hillel. That stuff, frankly, was all corny. Or at least really, really earnest. And certainly too earnest for a dyed-in-the-wool cynic like me. Being so into something without even a hint of irony doesn't really compute with me. I was, and am, outside of that world. So outside that a few acquaintances still refer to me as the Peru Jew, because I once told a group around an Orthodox friend's dinner table that I was more moved when visiting Machu Picchu than the first time I visited the Western Wall. Look, they're both pretty amazing, but still it's true. Basically, I looked at most Jewy Jew things and again, rolled my eyes. Being a Jew made sense to me, but acting like a Jew? Eh, not so much. Anyway, a few months after those drinks with friends and unorthodox fans, the same friend pointed out to me that unorthodox was looking for a podcast producer, which is a thing I do, and was something I was looking to do more of. So on January 3rd, 2018, I sent Mark my resume, and I started listening to the show. By the time I interviewed a couple weeks later, I had made it all the way back through the second Apology episode in October 2016. And by that time, it started to make a little bit of sense. But not that much. I mean, they were funny, but I can't say I was ready to subscribe. The job sounded cool, at least. And fortunately, I got it. 
my very first day on the job on January 24th included a live show with Father Jim Martin and Judy Gold, and things went well from there, but I still felt on the outside. These were Jews, and I got them, but it was all still a little too corny for me. However, the one thing from the start that was never corny was the opportunity to do and try interesting things with the team that they hadn't done before. So for episode 124, Liel and I went and interviewed five-year-olds at Harlem Hebrew, a dual-language elementary school. It's the funniest Hebrew word you know. Poopy? Poopy? <laughs> Do you know what that means? Yeah. What is but, it? That means a butt. Belly button. No, butt. But For episode 132, Stephanie and I went and talked to a celebrity chef in his new New York City location. So it's fo- the burger is folded over? It's inside? folded. Wow. And there's a big bubble of warm steam inside the wok. And when you are taking your first bite, all the steam is coming into your mouth. And by episode 140, I had set up Mark with a recording setup in his basement. So sometimes, when parenting demanded, it didn't have to schlep all the way into the city to record. All of these required lugging recording gear, figuring out recording spaces, and basically putting a lot of what I already knew how to do technically to the test. Then came the mitzvah tank. From the day I had started, there had always been some conversation about getting the three hosts out on the streets to experience what it was like to ask random strangers if they were Jewish. We were going to hang out with some Chabad emissaries, known as shluchim, as they did their work trying to get more Jews to perform more good deeds. If a man in a black hat and a suit, sporting a beard, ever came up to you and said, excuse me, are you Jewish? It was probably one of them. If it wasn't one of them, you should run in the other direction. If you had never heard the word shluchim before, don't feel bad. I hadn't either. It was a logistical and technical challenge, one that involved rain dates, multiple wireless microphones to rent, and a lot of cables and extra hands to hold them that day. Just keeping track of everyone was tough enough. If you've never tried to listen to three very talkative people, all speaking at the same time, trying to chase down strangers spread out across a city park, let me assure you, it can melt your brain. Oh, Stephanie's gonna do it. Stephanie's gonna do it. Excuse me, hi. Any chance you're Jewish? Are you Jewish? No. Okay, have a great day. What do you say after they say no? Be like, thank you. Oh, have a great day. Thank you. I hate to, I just don't wanna sound disappointed. Excuse me, is either of you Jewish? No? Okay, good luck. It is funny, I like, you can see the fear in some people's, right? Some people are definitely no, they'll like... Make, they'll make eye contact and look away Right, 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 right. Now it could be they're just thinking this is Greenpeace, this is... Like there are a lot of people on New York streets. Mark, do I look like a Greenpeace? <laughs> do you, I do look like Greenpeace. Hello, excuse me, sir, are you Jewish by any chance? No, okay. You know, beginning to feel like there's not a lot of us in the world. <laughs> right, right, we're all the Jews. Weird sense that not everyone is Jewish. we're a minority? It's very strange. I was simultaneously keeping track of sound quality, bouncing around between hosts with an extra mic for when somebody would actually talk to them, and all the while trying to make sense of which parts would actually be interesting for you, the listeners, to hear. A lot of stress and a lot of work, but it was one of the most fun recordings I've ever participated in. If you haven't heard how it turned out, check out episode 143, called The One with the Mitzvah Tank. In making it, we really showed how creative and fun we could be as a team. What it showed me as an individual was a lot greater, 
and it wasn't just about technical stuff and futzing with wires. For the first 40 or so years of my life, whenever one of those Chabad guys would ask me, are you Jewish? I would answer with something to the effect of, not enough for you. I did not feel connected to these guys in any way. They seemed to come from a different planet altogether. I don't wear a yarmulke, I don't put on tefillin, and I certainly don't agree with the way men and women are treated differently. It's not my Judaism. But were they my Jews? As we got to talking, and I listened to their thoughts and practices, I started to get more of a sense of how alike we were and how that outweighed the obvious differences. There was an undeniable shared cultural background that I felt, the same as I do with my wife, who is a French Jew with a Moroccan mother. We all grew up in different places, different homes, and different practices. But there was a shared cultural genetic memory that these dudes in the beards and me with the shaved head shared. I watched them wrap to fill in on a trans man. I watched them approach just about everyone of every age and color and fashion, assuming you never knew who could be a Jew. I might have been feeling that I wasn't Jewish enough for them, but it turns out I was more than enough of a Jew. I still don't agree with all their beliefs and practices, but it turns out for them, it doesn't really matter. And it shouldn't really matter to me either. The lesson I really took away from the experience was that there wasn't one way to be a Jew. And a lot of people across the spectrum of practice felt that way too. There are thousands of different ways. The conversation Stephanie I had with Al Shani at his restaurant Miznon over roast cauliflower and folded cheeseburger pitas was really about the stories that come along with our food and our shared history. The kids Liel and I talked to reminded me about how, regardless of our background, our language and culture connect us in ways that reflect our thousands of years of history. And Mark along the way has helped me discover what's at the heart of the stories we tell, trimming the fat down to what speaks to all of us, Jews and Gentiles alike. And then I got it, and I got unorthodox. It's not for Jewy Jews, it's not for unJewy Jews, it's just for Jews. Me Jews, them Jews, whatever Jews. And of course, also for the non-Jews that like Jews. There are underlying threads that are there for all of us. As we were prepping the Mitzvah Tank episode for release, Stephanie pointed out that our show is about us being cultural shluchim. It was the idea that the role that we're playing with Unorthodox is to remind everyone that whatever your beliefs, whatever your background, we are still one big, messy, disagreeing, complicated, funny, interrupting, brain-melting, but still loving mushpacha, a family. I did not roll my eyes. Hey, it's Father Jim Martin. I'm a Jesuit priest, and I am so proud to say that I've been a guest on Unorthodox twice. I think I was Goy of the Week, or maybe it was Gentile of the Week, or I was aiming for Goy of the Year. And I just wanted to say mazel tov to Stephanie, Liel, and Mark on your wonderful show. I'm so proud to be a part of the Unorthodox family. And once again, much mazel. Hi, this is Adrian from Virginia. Mazel tov on such a huge milestone. I first came across your show because of Father James Martin in 2019. As a Catholic, I was a big fan of Father Jim. He mentioned that he was on your podcast back in 2018. So I listened to that show. It was a live show and I was instantly hooked. Learning about Jewish culture, other podcasts, and the irreverence. I mean, I loved it. You all have so much fun. Well, two years later, I'm now a Jew. That's right. I converted during the pandemic. Your Shavuot episodes were a constant during the process, and they definitely did play a role in helping me discover my Jewish soul. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much. 
Here's to another 300. Shalom from Nakshon Shemuel. That's my Hebrew name. Bye, guys. Hey, Unorthodox. This is former producer Shira Tlishkin, and I just wanted to wish you guys a huge, huge mazel tov on reaching 300 episodes. That's so exciting. I... I mean, I was a total newbie when I came to the show in 2016. And over the next three years, I just learned so, so, so much from all of you. So to 300 more, mazel tov. Hey guys, this is Chef Enad. I want to say mazel tov on the 300 episode. Mark, Stephanie, and Liel, congratulations. I better be on the 301 episode. Mazel tov. So folks, there you have it. Episode number 300 is now in the books. There will be many more, of course, many more arguments about which is more Jewish, Tupperware or tinfoil, and whether it's pronounced mishmash or mishmash, or whether true Jews back into parking spaces or pull in headfirst. There'll be more Jews of the week and Gentiles of the week, more news of the Jews, more unforgettable listener letters. But most importantly, there'll be more of you, the J Crew, this warm community of listeners that make this team all want to keep on making the best show that they can week after week. On behalf of the whole team here at Unorthodox, Mark Oppenheimer, Stephanie Butnick, Liel Leibowitz, Josh Cross, Sarah Fredman Ada, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, and the whole tablet Mishpucha, we are deeply grateful for your love and support. As we bid adieu to an uneasy year, we have just one last thing to say. Shalom, friends, and see you in 2022. Quinn Waller here. We thought it might be nice to give the hosts a little time off, so we'll be back on January 13th. Until then, here are the credits. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Studios and hosted by Mark Oppenheimer, Stephanie Butnick, and Lial Leibovitz. Thank you to Simon Doonan for hosting this week's episode and to David Guggenheim for making him sound so good. Josh Cross is our executive producer. Robert Scaramuccia is our producer and editor. And Sara Fredman-Ader is our managing producer. I'm Quinn Waller, the soon-to-be former Quintern, but they are not getting rid of me just yet. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our artwork is by Tablet's art director, Esther Werdiger, and this week by Kurt Hoffman. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Rabbinic supervision by the entire cast of the movie 300. We come to you from the secular New Year's Eve celebrations of Tablet Studios, where we're ringing in 2022 and getting to work on our next 300 episodes. Shalom, friends. Unorthodox, 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 unorthodox.
unorthodox, 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 unorthodox. unorthodox. <laughs>